Hello, one and all, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where we take a dive into the niche and obscure tales from our history and share it with you, the listeners. I am your host, Kelvin, he and pronouns, and joining me today is my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-host. Say hi. Hi, I'm Jamie, she, her pronouns. How are you doing today, Jamie? doing pretty good, Kelvin. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully you'll find this episode a little interesting. <laughs> I hope everyone finds all the episodes interesting, of course. And this one is going to be on the bit of a nerdier side. I'm trying to really delve in here. And this one, you know, will help go to our non-American international history quota, I think. Just because it's easier to find those stories, just because... We are in Texas and whatever, but for our international listeners who we (laughs) love, uh, we've got to give them a little bit of flavor. So that's what the part of the goal is with today's episode. Okay. And so what languages do you speak? English. Yeah. And that is it. That is it. (laughs) I mean, English for me, I speak enough and understand enough Spanish that I'm like, able to survive like I went to Peru a few years ago and was able to navigate that fairly well but I I I know like two words I know like bathroom and um lettuce oh lechuga yeah that that's right (laughs) (laughs) most important yeah yeah that's all you need that's all you need (laughs) yeah but yeah so um I know a bit more Spanish than that but not a whole lot more, I don't guess. Uh, <laughs> so, would Spanish be like if you could open up your brain and pour a language in? Is that the one it would be, or would you pick a different one? Mm, I would probably actually do... I mean, practicality-wise, it would probably be Spanish. Right. Like, if we're talking just functionality, which one am I going to use the most? Absolutely Spanish. But if it's just which one do I like the most as far as how it sounds, probably be either French or Italian. Ooh, fancy, fancy. But I mean, Italian and Spanish are also very similar to each other. Right. So if you know one, it's fairly easy to learn the other. Sure, sure. I'm so far in with Spanish that I gotta commit, you yeah. know, right? Um, but as far as like just a fun, random one to throw in there, I think. Like Irish Gaelic, that would mm, be fun. That would be fun. Oh my gosh, I have some totally unrelated, but I have some like drama about Irish Gaelic. Oh. So there's this series of books that came out recently. Well, they're on book two. It's called the first book is called The Fourth Wing or something. Okay. And the author, for all her naming, it's like dragons and dragon riders. Okay. I haven't read the book, but the author for a lot of the naming of these characters used as her inspiration, like, Irish Gaelic. Apparently Gaelic and Gaelic are two different things, even though they're spelled the same. She used one. Okay. Totally butcher. There's, like, it was, like, an, a clip of an interview that went around. She's totally butchering all these names, apparently. Hmm. I don't know. I don't speak the language. Yeah. But all these speakers are being like, that is not how you pronounce that. And she's in this interview with this interviewer being like, that's how you say this name. That's how you say this name. And all these native speakers are like, no, you're butchering our language and it's already like kind of dying out and that's yeah. disrespectful. And so <laughs> she got so much like flack for it that um, for her second book that's uh-huh. coming out soon, 
she apparently did like more research and, and like consulted people. She checked herself. <laughs> yeah. Like, good for her, I guess. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that hey, that Gaelic book talk. Mm-hmm. But I love hearing them say all the names. They'll be like, no, that's how you say this name. And it, I'm like, I would not have yeah, guessed no, that. No, I, I would have a very clue. <laughs> all right. So we have language drama. Um, <laughs> languages that you would learn, all that we taught. Uh, how about, uh, have you ever given any thought to uh, just inventing a language? I haven't. My mom and her twin sister used to have their oh, own the language. Oh, the little twin speak? And they had little twin speak all the way up until they were like five years old. And then my grandma told them that they weren't allowed to speak it anymore because she didn't like the... She couldn't understand what they were saying to each other. So they forgot it. But I think oh. it'd be fun to have something like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's fun. Well, that's uh, kind of what we're doing in today is we're going to discuss... Uh, the most famous example of a, they're called constructed languages. They're not mm -hmm. languages that develop naturally from human societies interacting with one another. No, so it's like Klingon and... Klingon, Elvish, fish. Dothraki. Yeah, all those are examples of conlangs. And so we are going to discuss the, probably the most successful conlang in the history of the world. So, without further ado, ni plongu mausupren en la kuniklotruan. <laughs> Let's dive down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I offer a toast. The undiscovered country. The future. The undiscovered country. Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. You have not experienced Shakespeare until you have read him in the original Klingon. Ha! 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 Mistranslating things, it can be humorous, right? Um, you know, you get things like when President Jimmy Carter in 1977, he traveled to Poland and uh, he faced numerous issues with the translators there. In he would say like, I left the US this morning and it turned into 
I left the United States never to return. Oh. Or um, <laughs> he expressed his happiness uh, to be in the country. Like, I'm happy to be here, you know, with people of Poland. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for your future as a people. And then that got turned into uh, like a sexual vibe that he was happy to be in Poland. <laughs> and uh, basically he, uh, it was mistranslated to the crowd as what like another president might say, grab Poland by the pussy. <gasps> it was that kind of vibe that got expressed to the crowd. Jimmy Carter, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Carter of all of them. <laughs> but, oh my uh, gosh. You know, that's humorous, but in the end, like, everyone knew that that's not what he's actually well, saying. Yeah. Like, he's not going to go up in front of the crowd. What a good meme, though. Right? <laughs> what a good meme. Um, but, you know, it can, mistranslating things can have more serious consequences such as in the case of the Treaty of Waitangi, which I'm probably saying that wrong, but I'm gonna say a lot of stuff wrong because um, this is one about languages that I do not speak. <laughs> so the Treaty of Waitangi of 1840 is a treaty between the British government and the Maori people okay. of Aotearoa, AKA New Zealand. Okay. And this document uh, basically established, like, the government of New Zealand and its interaction with the Maori people. It made the Maori people British subjects, but depending on whether you read the English translation or the Maori translation of this agreement, it splits on deciding whether or not the Maori people ceded that territory to be part of the British Empire, or whether it was more like a protectorate status. Okay. Of course, the British-English translation is, this is ours yeah. now, and the Maori are like, no, we're your subjects, but this is still, still our. ours. Yeah. But that's, yeah, hmm. it has caused many an issue over the centuries. But even like the decision to speak a specific language or restrict the speaking of certain languages, you know, it, it's a very political act. Like Native American languages in the US have often been treated with derision and suppressed. Same with like the Irish Gaelic type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so by people choosing to speak those languages is like a element of pride and reestablishing that type of thing. And, or you can get like with Canada, they have the political bilingualism of French and English in all government documents, even though it's not as like outside of Quebec, there's not really a whole lot of French speakers, mm -hmm. but there is a large political effort to protect the quote language rights of French Canadians. So linguistic nationalism that we've now stumbled into with all these different things has these kind of negative side effects like uh, with the oppression and the 
mistreatment or it can get like reversed where it's like why are you making me have to learn this other language now just to do yeah it gets whole convoluted stuff that we're not going to spend a whole <laughs> lot of time on except to establish that a lot of people not being able to talk the same sucks sometimes and so supposedly a solution to this all these issues uh could be addressed by the language that the constructed language that we will be discussing today, which is Esperanto. Esperanto is what is in the linguistic fancy words studies known as a constructed international auxiliary language. Okay. <laughs> Just a lot of big words. So constructed meaning Someone made it up. Someone yeah. sat down, wrote all, all the rules and the words, and they decided that this is how it's going to work. It didn't just spring Develop. up naturally. Yeah. And it is created to serve as an international auxiliary, which means that it is intended to supplement the means of international communication by serving as a worldwide second language. So sort of like the common tongue in Game of Thrones. Yes. Okay. Yes. It is not supposed to replace anybody's language. It's but in its ideology of Esperanto is everyone should learn to speak this in mm -hmm. addition to what they already know. Okay. In order to then just be able to swap into it whenever you meet someone that doesn't that speaks a different primary language. Got it. So to illustrate the scenario of what Esperanto's goal is, we're going to imagine the United Nations, you know, and how the United Nations works in these big general assemblies. You, if you ever seen like photos or video of it, they all have like these little headphones on. Um, and in those headphones, what is basically happening is you have a live translator talking into your ear based off of whoever is speaking. So if someone is up on stage speaking in English and you are, say, a representative from Peru or something, you know, you have to have a Spanish translator in your ear talking. So you have someone that is English to Spanish translating into your little earpiece real time. But you also have to have one for all the French speakers, English into French. You have to have one for all the German speakers, all the Swahili, Russian. That's each... a lot of translators. Yeah, you need like an army for English into everything. And then you need like another army for Spanish into everything. And yeah. so you just have to have, I mean, people obviously translate multiple things. Um, but it it takes a large group of a community of these translators in real time going on. And Esperanto's goal would be to replace all of that complexity where just everyone, if they either would just be speaking in Esperanto in that kind of scenario, or if they are speaking in their native language, they just have someone translating that into Esperanto and then everyone understands that. Mm. So So you would only need like one translator per language, essentially. Right. 
And so it, yeah, it's supposed to like simplify all that, which is a neat idea, right? And the guy who invented it, who we'll talk about here in a second, he, he thought like this would solve world peace. Like he was that idealistic about it. Mm, that's a little optimistic, I think. But I don't know. Maybe maybe he's right. Maybe he's got a point. And so um, Esperanto was invented by Ludwig L. Zamenhof. He was born in Belostok, which is now part of Poland. But back in 1859, it was part of the Russian Empire. And so Belostok was, so he's Russian. I mean, ethnicity gets weird. Yeah. But uh, he, he was born in the Russian Empire. But he was born in an area known as the Pale of Settlement, which okay. due to Zamenhof's Jewish heritage was the only region in the Russian Empire he could have lived with his family. So the Pale of Settlement was a region where all the Jews in Russia were forced to live in. I mean, it's a very large region, but still. Still. Zamenhof's Jewishness is a very important recurring theme Mm -hmm. throughout all this, just because of the time period that he is living in. So it'll just be brought up multiple times. (laughs) Okay. So he lived in the Pale of Settlement region around Belstock, growing up in this very multicultural region. I mean, he's on the border with Russia Empire and the Poland area, Central Europe. So he's meeting, you know, Jewish people, Poles, Russians, Belarusians, and they're all in the same area intermixing. And Zamenhof himself was natively bilingual in Yiddish and Russian. Okay. And his father was a language professor of German and French, so he had some exposure to that at a young age. And in school, he learned Polish, being in the school system of that area. And also he got like the classical language treatment of Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. So it's a lot of languages. He's very talented linguistically starting at a very young age. So he's able to navigate all these different communities somewhat easily. But he began noticing that there those linguistic barriers truly did help to sever these communities and divide them off into their own little sections, which I mean makes sense. People yeah. want to be able to communicate with the people around them. But he noticed that it was stopping the true whole community of coming together of people. And they were more content to sit in their own isolated ethnic language groups rather than coming together as the whole community. Hmm. Um, And he saw that at a young age and decided that that was something that should be remedied in his mind. And so from an early age, he decided that he was going to develop an international auxiliary language in order to bridge the divides in the community. He went to school in Warsaw and began developing a language in the 1870s. And 
you know, kind of just as a hobby, really. Mm -hmm. But after studying some English through his studies, he decided that his first attempt was way too complex for anybody to be able to get. <laughs> and it was just too much of a mess in that he was going to have to just scrap this attempt. Also, his dad was uh, thinking, hey, you're getting older now. You're going off to Warsaw to college. You need to focus on getting a real job other than... <laughs> Very father of him. Yes, uh, you know. Quit playing around and get a real job. Even though he is a linguistics <laughs> professor, he's like, nah, you need a real job. Maybe that's exactly why. Yeah. Because he, know, he knows what it's like, financially at least, to be a professor. So, Zamenhof did just that. <laughs> he became a doctor. An yeah. ophthalmologist, to be exact. Hmm, interesting, so, okay. Eyeball doctors, for people who don't know. So yeah, that, that's what he ended up doing, and his language passion, while it did not go away, it definitely took a place on the back burner as mm. he had to make money. And yeah. So I guess it became like a hobby instead of his entire life. Right. So Zamenhof is not the first person, or really even the only person at this time, who is interested in creating an international conlang, constructed language. 1880, a German priest named Johann Martin Scheiler uh, published a guidebook for an invented language he came up with, uh, which supposedly God told him to make in a dream mm -hmm. called, and so this language is called Volapük, and Volapük is widely considered to be the first successful international auxiliary language in terms of like there was a community of people mm -hmm. trying to learn how to speak it and spread it around. And Samenhof had shown interest in this, but he decided it was too complicated for people to learn easily and that it should not be taken seriously as a product. And I mean, it while it was successful in terms of like there was a community that developed, it's not that large by mm -hmm. any standard really. And this too complicated thing is going to be a recurring theme of all <laughs> these attempts because language is hard. Yeah. Especially new languages. So yeah, uh, Zamenhof, while he's now a doctor now, and like I said, his language issues have kind of take it a back burner, but uh, they weren't the only thing, only hobby he had, right? We all contain multitudes. Like we addressed earlier, Zamenhof was Jewish, and he was living in a time of rampant anti-Semitism mm. in the Russian Empire. Waves of pogroms, which are riots that are aimed towards expelling Jewish community from like a city, so like effectively like a race riot or something. Mm -hmm. And living in that violence in the region made him interested in joining the early Zionist movement mm -hmm. at the time. And again, with language stuff, uh, the promotion and codification of the Yiddish language, which was one of his birth tongues. 
So for those who don't know, Zionism is the political nationalist movement that is dedicated for establishing and maintaining a ethnically Jewish nation state, usually situated in the historical boundaries of the Kingdom of Israel, to give a textbook definition, I guess. There's a lot of different types of Zionism and different motivations behind it, whether it be like religious, political, or whatever you want to say. But for Zamenhof, he and his personality, like wanting to create this auxiliary language, international thing, he had very much an internationalist worldview. And so even though he was like initially interested in the theory of Zionism as a motivation, his internationalist views decide kind of distance him that because he did not think that creating another nation, creating more international boundaries was a step in the direction that he was mm. wanting to go to as far as a global world where we're all together, all, you know. Yeah. That type of thing. And he, so he began distancing himself from the Zionist movement just because that was ideologically, he did not think that, that was the way to go as far as solving the issues that were facing the community at the time. But Zionism is a whole can of worms <laughs> and stuff is happening in the world. So we will move on. Yes, we're going to leave that can of worms very closed. Yes, so Zamenhof is still living in Warsaw, 1887, and he finishes his conling. And he manages not to convince his father, because his father's still like, get a job, a real yeah. job. Um, Be an he, adult. <laughs> but by this time, he is married, and he manages to convince his father-in-law to allow him to use some of the money from his wife's dowry to get a book published. And the book is a grammar guide explaining his language. If it was his wife's dowry, did he really need his father-in-law's permission on how to use it? I know that's not really I have no idea how dowries but... work. Huh. Yeah, dowries are an interesting concept all on their own. Yeah. Um... Uh, I don't have a dowry, so no. I don't know how they work. Well, then who's going to want to marry you, Jamie, without a dowry? Clearly no one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, so he manages to get this book published. And this book was titled The International Language, colon, An Introduction and Complete Grammar. Hmm, okay. And this is not even a vocab book, it's a grammar book? Right. Okay. Yeah, and... As far as constructing a language goes, um, grammar is much more important than vocabulary mm -hmm. because you can always make up new words. We're doing that all the time. Yeah. But grammar is the stuff that people actually like need to get in their heads as far as being able to effectively communicate. Yeah. And that's that grammar is actually like one of the defining things that makes language a thing like mm -hmm. we can teach gorillas a bunch of different vocab but mm -hmm. we would never people argue but scientifically mm -hmm. it's generally accepted that they do not have language 
because they do not have grammar yeah. in the structure of it. They can express thoughts because we've taught them, oh, give me banana, but they would not say, give me banana and understand that it's a subject and object and verb action happening. Yeah. Um, or be able to plug other things into like a similar formula of mm -hmm. sentence structure. So yeah, anyways, he publishes this book under a pseudonym because he's yep. a doctor with a real job. He can't be... He doesn't want his daddy to know and get mad. I mean, his dad's going <laughs> to know, but like he has to maintain a, yeah. a distance for respectability, right? He's still got to maintain his professional reputation. So uh, his pseudonym was Dr. Esperanto. Okay. Which in the language stands for one who hopes. Oh, cute. Yeah. Because he's an optimist. Yeah, yeah. And so. He's an optimistic opmythologist. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Optimistic ophthalmologist. Op, 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 op. Yeah, it's an opt. Op. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so that's where the language would eventually get the name from, is from Esperanto, his from his pseudonym. And this book is a, like, foundational text, so much that it is known in the Esperanto community as the Unua Libro, which is first book. And uh, this community would go on to call themselves Esperantists. People hmm. who speak Esperanto. Um, okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, here's the crash course on Esperanto, Jamie. It's supposed to be super simple that anyone can learn it because it has very simple grammar that has no exceptions. Like for any of its rules. Um, words in the language are also very simple because... There's a lot of derivation, mm -hmm. which means that there's a list of root words that if you memorize, you can then make a bunch of new words depending on various prefixes and suffixes. That will tell you if it's a verb or a noun or an adjective, etc. Um, you took Latin, right? Mm -hmm. They have a lot of derivation. Yeah, a lot of it. There's like... Well, conjugations are different than derivations. Right. But there's like a lot of conjugations, a lot of derivations. And so you can have two very similar phrases that mean two very different things based on like placing of the words. Right. All that. Yeah. Anyways, it, it was very structured and mm. there were like, like I said, no exceptions. They were all going to be the same thing. And they had this very specific list that allowed them to create a bunch of words. It also borrowed uh, and mixed different aspects and vocabulary and sentence structure from the Romance, Slavic, and Germanic languages. Mm -hmm. Basically in such a way where if you speak any European language, you could pretty easily learn to speak Esperanto. I mean, even like the couple phrases I've thrown out, like yeah. if you're familiar with like Spanish or Italian, uno libro, uno libro, you know, 
yeah. in Spanish, or uh, esperar is to hope in Spanish, and esperanto, Ronto. you know, it, and it, it, it's easier for that kind of mind to pick up. And of course, he's in Europe doing this, so it makes sense. everyone around him would be able to easily pick it up. And because it was simple, uh, it actually began to catch on and the language began to grow in popularity. And so it was enough to where Zamenhof was actually able to publish like newer editions and guides for his language. And he developed like a couple little tweaks as far as grammar, like after more people were speaking it and being able to workshop it a bit. And Esperanto clubs became a thing hmm. where people would just get together and study this made up language. And what dorks. Yeah, right. Nerd. <laughs> uh, yeah, nerd. Nerd. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's a I mean,. You and I did the same thing in high school with right. Latin club and Spanish club. I mean, talk about nerds. Just go to a Latin club right. convention. Yeah, you went to a Latin convention. <laughs> I never did that. But, um, so yeah, the first Esperanto club was in Nuremberg, Germany in 1888. And, but quickly, like all over Europe, uh, Russia, Bulgaria, Spain, France, Sweden... They began popping up all over the place. And in 1889, La Esperantisto, which was a monthly Esperanto language magazine, Whoa. was created by this community. Like, Zamenhof So was, they mean serious business. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just community grown. People would subscribe and they get chipped up. Hmm. magazine that had like the news and stories and stuff it's just written in esperanto and the magazine only lasted a couple years uh, until 1895 but other magazines would come after and this was a major factor in popularizing the language and fostering a larger international community around it hmm. and in 1905 and that was you know Obviously, like, the big ideology behind Esperanto is creating an international community of mankind, right? And so, in 1905, the world's first World Esperanto Congress was held in in France in Boulogne-sur-Mer. Or Boulogne-sur-Mer, I don't know. <laughs> Boulogne-sur-Mer. <laughs> Um, but anyways, uh, it was a popular conference. 650 people attended. Wow. Including Zamenhof. And at this conference, or this congress, the Esperantist community ratified the so-called Declaration of Boulogne. Or in Esperanto, that's Declaratio Pri la Essencia de Esperantismo. Sounds fancy. Yeah, right? And this declaration laid out the five most important precepts of the Esperanto movement, which were, one, the movement is solely for the promotion of the Esperanto language, and no other political movement is attached to it or motivation. Two, the ultimate goal of the Esperantist movement 
is to become the ultimate international language. Three, Esperanto belongs to no person and anybody can use it for any reason. Four, the only authority over the language was the Fundamento de Esperanto, which was like the third volume of the language book written by Zamenhof. There, but that was that rule book is the only governing body. There is no council that creates grammar rules. Zamenhof himself is not in charge of the language and deciding things. It is that one book. And if something comes up that is not in that book, then it is up to the speakers themselves to determine a course of action as a community, as the language will just evolve naturally, not directed. And then lastly, number five, participation in the wider Esperantist council, like that part of the community, it's not necessary to be an Esperantist. All you have to do is speak the language and you are an Esperantist. Hmm. Also at this Congress, they adopted a symbol to like represent themselves and that symbol was the Verdastello, which is the green star and they like made a little flag and but the green star was the symbol of their movement and uh lastly the last thing of importance to happen in this congress was that Zamenhof like officially like made a proclamation to distance himself from leadership um just so that way it can go and be itself and like truly I've, I've done my part it is now up to you type of thing but also he wanted to distance any attacks on the language that were anti-semitic in nature that were directed at him he didn't want that to be directed towards the wider community as much as possible so by distancing himself he can you know it's like sacrificing mm -hmm. but not you know that's, that was part of the motivation. And so after this Congress, the language continues to grow and be successful. More clubs pop up, a growing population of speakers, and it's thriving to some extent. It's growing. And there were two big moments in the early part of the 20th century that really helped to boost the status of the language. That it became like internationally known because of these moments. The first was in 1908. Okay. It was suggested that an Esperanto speaking country should be founded. Mm, using whose land? <laughs> I mean, and also like the whole point is that we're trying to go away from nations yeah, and stuff, right? It's supposed to be a universal language, right? Not... Mm hmm. Yeah, so, you know, if mixed feelings about it, but uh, it, it was, there was a faction of the Esperantist movement who thought that it would be beneficial to have, like, a base of operations. And so they decided that forming a small nation somewhere in Europe that could house the bulk of the community and then they can be able to better create a community instead of like having newspapers and stuff, whatever. 
Anyways, and then your mm. question of whose land? Well, the land of neutral Morrisnet is where they decided. Where? Let's rewind. <laughs> the year is 1814, and Napoleon Bonaparte had just been defeated for good this time. And Europe is roiling in chaos because Napoleon had just done his thing. And all the powers of the European continent came together at the Congress of Vienna to basically try to put the pieces back together of the international order, redraw all the lines on the map, and create like a balance of powers that way there wouldn't be another Napoleon, is the thought. Okay. And so... So, like, in the process of drawing up all this new stuff, new nations are being created as mm. part of, like, buffer states, right? Between these big empires. Prussia and the Netherlands were a pair of countries who are needing to redraw their boundaries between them. And for the most part, it was, like, pretty normal. Hey, we'll just put it back to where it was before Napoleon steamrolled over us. But there was one exception, a very small five-kilometer stretch of land. So what, three miles? Yeah, just about, um, that was right in the middle of them, and uh, both sides wanted it. Mm. Why? Because right in that one spot was a zinc mine. Mm. And they, they, want, they want that resource. And that's literally all that is in that little chunk of land. Well, yeah, it's only three miles. There right. can't be that much in there. And uh, so both countries wanted this sink mine, but neither nation wanted to start another war. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, they'd just been at war for like 12 years yeah, or something. Yeah, I was about to say, Napoleon was going at it for a while. Yeah, and so he deci they decided that if I can't have it and you can't hide it, Neither of us will have it. Mm -hmm. So basically, they decided they would run that little stretch of land as a condominium, which is a concept that was brought up in an earlier episode, if you go back and listen. Mm. But they're going to share it. The laws of both countries will apply. So they're going to share, like, the mine as well, or...? Well, it's... It, French and German, Prussian, but German law would apply in both mm. cases to their respective citizens. Oh, okay. Got it, got it, got it. That, that was more like a company owned the mine and was like selling it to stuff. But as far as like taxing and mm. that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Sounds complicated. It was. And there's a reason why we don't really do condominiums anymore yeah. because, yeah. So a few years after they've decided they're going to do this condominium thing, uh, the Netherlands has a bit of a civil war and Belgium breaks off and becomes its own thing. Okay. And with that, all the claims that the Netherlands had the neutral Morsnet went to Belgium. And that's how things would be. They... Belgium is now sharing with Germany, and that's how it's going to be for about 100 years. 
Then this small stretch of land is about five kilometers by one and a half kilometers at its widest point. Whoa. So slightly larger than the city state of Monaco and about a thousand times smaller than Rhode Island <laughs> to give people an idea of size. This mine had a small sliver of land and maybe a couple thousand people living there. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened in 1908 was a couple of Esperantists living there decided that since no country really owns this, uh, we, it would be the perfect place to expand our movement and establish like an Esperantist community base. Unfortunately, they never achieved the independence that they were hoping for, and it was never ever that serious. It, and like amongst the population mm -hmm. of Esperantists, it wasn't as like a wide a thing as people would hope. But that year, the World Esperanto Congress did endorse the idea and made Neutral Morrisnet the world capital of the Esperantist community. But ultimately, during World War I, Neutral Morrisnet was annexed by Germany. Mm. Uh, but after the war, it is now part of Belgium. Okay. So Neutral Morrisnet no longer exists. <laughs> but they, they had like an Esperanto-speaking country, they thought. Uh, or they claimed. Believe what you want. You yes. Know? <laughs> so that that's the first major highlight of Esperanto. Okay. Uh, the second major event that sort of boosted the status of the movement followed World War I. And in 1920, there was a vote in the League of Nations, which was this new club of international nations that you know, it's the predecessor to the United Nations, right? And so, very big international flavor. Esperanto people love this type of thing. And they began to vote on what the official languages of the League of Nations would be in order to conduct business. And there was a vote to make Esperanto one of those official international languages. Hmm. And out of that vote of 11 countries, only one nation voted against the motion. Okay, okay. Moving on up in the world. You want to guess who that nation was? Who else voting again? It, it's, it's not all the countries in the League of Nations. Okay. It's just like what the committee that went off to do this was a group of uh, 11 different countries. And of that 11, only one voted against allowing Esperanto to be one of the official languages of the League of Nations. Mm. You want to... I mean, all the big ones are going to be on it, so... The U.S.? No, because the U.S. was not a member of the League of Nations. Oh. It was France. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> the France and the, the snooty. Uh, yeah. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Oh, oh, oh. oh, you did not say baguette, correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the French did not like the idea of Esperanto supplanting French as the de facto international language, because at the time it was, you know, 
that was the language that people like yeah. nowadays it's english back then it was french. french and so and because they're one of like the big nations they got like a little veto power and so they <laughs> vetoed the motion every time it came up that's crazy 10 out of the 11 said yeah let's do it mm -hmm. because you can have multiple international languages but they were like no just french <laughs> so yeah but to give you an idea of just like how international this was it like wasn't just european anymore some of the nations whose delegates were making the motions to add esperanto were citizens from like iran and japan mm. so so it's like really a global range of people yes on this committee i guess yeah, I mean, just in the movement, but yeah. as far as that specific committee. And this is, like, 1920s is the high watermark of the movement in terms of mm. international prestige and usage diplomatically and that type of thing. Mm. And as far as the hope goes. Because, uh, as you know from history, uh, times get dark after that for a few decades. So Zamenhof passed away in 1917, and though he tried his best to, like, keep Esperanto, like, cohesive, already they were, like, different types of Esperanto out there and sort of was fracturing off. And, uh, and though he wanted it to be, like, uh, oh, we're just about the language, right? We have no other political agenda going on certain groups had latched on to the idea of Esperanto as a means of their own personal mm. motivations. And it became associated with certain ideologies that had similar beliefs, namely leftist, communist, socialist, anarchist persuasions, you know, that whole spectrum of ideology. They latched on and they shared membership with a lot of Esperantists and mm. because of which doesn't really give your new baby language a good reputation right it, it creates that association which um reactionary politics from the nationalists and the anti-semitism they then latch on to is like oh not only were you made by Jewish people you're also communists, and we can't have any of that, you know? You want to abolish nations. There's multiple reasons we don't like you. Yes. And so there begins to be a backlash against this. Um, prime example, the French, again, during this period, they ended up banning all Esperanto education in schools in order to protect the status of French and not corrupt the language the french being the french but just banning its education isn't the worst of it basically every one of the bad guys from this part of history gets involved on really punching on these esperantists <laughs> like uh we'll start off with the soviet union because, you know, oh, leftist communists, they're, they're going to like this stuff, right? And while the Soviet Union was initially supportive of Esperanto, 
it did not last because uh, Stalin comes to power, Joseph Stalin, and uh, Stalin, though he is a Soviet and it's like an international identity, like it's a Soviet Union of different states, right? Uh, Stalin very much turned this international Soviet identity and mixed it where it basically was just, oh, international? No, I mean Russian identity. Mm. And so Soviet very much becomes Russian instead of this international thing. And that means the promotion of promotion and elevation of the Russian culture and the Russian language at the expense of all else. And so if you're speaking Esperanto, you then can get in trouble because you're not speaking Russian. Mm. And so that becomes an issue in the Soviet Union. And then you got the fascists in Spain and Portugal. They began limiting the language in those communities because they got to promote Spain or in, you know, Spain's case, it's they promote Spanish at uh -huh. the expense of all else. Portugal, same thing. And then, of course, the fascists, you got the granddaddy of them all, Nazi Germany, mm. they get involved. And so um, Hitler signaled out Esperanto as a Jewish plot in Mein Kampf. He calls it out specifically. And while he was in control of Germany, he disrupted some of the strongest Esperanto communities in the world. Like I said, the first... Mm -hmm. Uh, Esperanto Club was in Nuremberg, which is where the Nazis held their annual big festivals and stuff and rallies. Mm. So, yeah, that, that didn't go along very well. And, um, of course, uh, many Esperantists, some of them who were Jewish, ended up getting killed in the Holocaust. And actually, Esperantists were one of the categories of people that were explicitly targeted, along with Jews, homosexuals, mm -hmm. uh, Roma people. Yeah, Esperantists were one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, though Zamenhof had already passed away, uh, all of Zamenhof's children were killed during the Holocaust. Whoa. So... Rough time. Yeah. <laughs> and these are all happening, like, simultaneously, too. And, uh, yeah, but while this definitely decreased the size of the community, uh, it was not eradicated, and there are actually several promising stories of resistance and persistence during mm -hmm. this time period as the language... Because the language, its mission is for peace, and it had, it carried on in that tradition through this world war. And so, like, there's stories how in several concentration camps and POW camps, Esperantists were able to teach the language to fellow prisoners by telling the Nazis that they were actually, no, we're not speaking Esperanto, we're speaking Italian. Mm. And because... Italy's fascist at the time. Oh, yeah, that's okay. That's fine. 
And so they were able to do that to be able to have that bit of community building during the time. And so, but yeah, eventually the war does end. And while the worst of the atrocities ceased, there was still instances where there was now this stigma towards the Esperantist community. And there was a, so that kept it from being able to just immediately bounce back to its former glory. So one example of like something that's not directly harmful, right, but is definitely going against the spirit and creating a stigma was that for many years, the United States military would host war games, you know, to train their troops. And as part of these exercises, some of the troops were taught a little bit of Esperanto in order to play the part of foreign enemy combatants during the war games. Which, you know, that's kind of like against the whole point, being yeah. a language of world peace, to being like, hey, we're going to train soldiers. Using this. So that way they can be foreigners, you know. Um, but ultimately, the U.S. military stopped that after a bit because... Uh, even though Esperanto is easier to learn than a whole lot of languages, the U.S. military decided that it's too difficult and too much effort. Just I to... mean, it's still trying to teach tons of soldiers a right. secondary language. Yeah, so that practice... Regardless of how easy it is to learn, it's still another language. Yeah, and... Um, but the World Esperanto Congress has been held almost every year except, of course, during the World Wars and COVID-19. But uh, today, the current status of the language, uh, most stats quote the language as having around 2 million speakers worldwide. Wow! Making it the most successful conlang in history. And, I would not have guessed 2 million. And this, that would have been like yeah. 200,000, maybe. Right. Yeah, no, two million worldwide speakers. Wow. And uh, the language is also the distinction as so far being the only constructed language that actually has a population of native speakers. Mm. Because, you know... Because it developed like... Well, no, it's like Esperantists have come together and raised their children mm. for Esperanto to be their first tongue. Whoa. And there's about around a thousand people or so expected that Esperanto is their first and primary mm. language. It's cool. So yeah, and that's... You don't meet people whose first language is Klingon. Well, actually, one person did try to do that. A nerd tried to teach their kid Klingon as mm. their first language, but by like the time they were going to school... The only person that was speaking, I mean, it's just your dad yeah. speaking Klingon to you. And eventually the kid was like, stopped responding in Klingon. I mean, <laughs> he would still understand what he'd be asked, but he just responded in English. English. And because, come on, dad. Yeah. Go get a real job, dad. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah. I mean, I'm a Star Trek fan, but like. Come on, though. Come on. Yeah. Maybe like, don't be such a nerd. <laughs> Isn't that hard? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, in the modern day, the internet has been a big boost to the Esperanto yeah. community. Because now, 
you're able to converse with Esperanto speakers all over the entire globe mm -hmm. through like chat rooms. There's apps like Duolingo has Esperanto really? on it. Mm -hmm. And you can even get apps that are like, you can travel and stay with other Esperanto speakers mm. and, you know, be able to do that sort of thing. And with the internet making a bunch of content accessible, you have Esperantists that are going through and translating everything in Esperanto, right? Mm. And that's like, and the internet is like a big thing, like ideologically that aligns with stuff like it. Yeah. It's without borders for the most part. Um, you know, everyone in the world can interact with mm -hmm. each other. You know, it's fantastic. And with translating software, mm -hmm. you can see like someone's Instagram post from Russia and still translate right. it. And so yeah, the community is hopefully growing and hmm. you know maybe one day they will solve world peace um maybe well a lot of people like you who downplay this oh. jane who don't believe sorry Hilda. who don't esperanto sorry I, I, that's probably not how you conjugate but you know <laughs> they uh people are like oh well we have english as a international language right yeah and so why would we need esperanto if english does that and uh, Esperantists would say, well, French used to be the international language, and it's not anymore. Yeah. So... When the U.S. You... finally falls. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, so who can definitively say that, like, you know, hey, someone can take your place. Yeah. Watch your back. Um, there are some critics uh, about, critiques about Esperanto and debates in the community about how it should progress. A lot of the critiques are like the language's Eurocentric nature. Mm. Like, yeah, it's easy if you speak a romance language, but not like... Yeah, I was about to say. If you bunch of what you said grow up like speaking Spanish. Arabic or whatever, right? Um, or, uh, you know, there's, like I said, Esperanto. You had fraction groups of different types of Esperanto. Yeah that have become, or they're known as Esperantidos, and their own, their own rival communities of people promoting that as yeah. the international auxiliary. So one of them, like Edo, is the big one. Yeah. But there's also, like, Esperanto 2, which, like, come on, man. <laughs> but that's, like, uh, weird nerds. Nerds being nerds, fighting about nerd shit. But... Yeah, you know, it it's a, it's a neat little thing that happened and has like this really huh. in-depth and storied history. I didn't know that like made up languages were anything other than like nerds being nerds. Mm -hmm. You know? And like it's I mean and when I say nerd, I don't mean like It's in a loving way. Yeah, it's in a loving way. Like cuz the fact that someone like went and made like Dothraki that mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not like this huge expansive, but it's like a language that you can go on the internet and like learn. And uh -huh. same thing with Klingon. Like it's not just gibberish that someone wrote down for a book. They right. actually made a language with like grammar rules and structure to it. That's really cool, but I mean, it doesn't ever go anywhere other than like hyper-focused fans. Mm -hmm. 
But this shows like yeah. you can do you deeper can do stuff, and, and yeah, it's it's a really beautiful like the idea of the movement is like yeah, yeah that is great, and hopefully one day they make it. But I mean, two million is way more yeah. than I would have expected. Way more. Yeah, truly very interesting. Can you imagine like this being your first language? And you're filling out paperwork for somewhere, and it's like, what's your primary language? And you have to put down Esperanto. I mean, some people would probably look at you like, what is that? Yeah, what is you that? Know, like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> A made-up language? Oh. First language is gibberish. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not made up. Well, it is made up, but it's not oh, fake. Yeah. It's not fake. Constructed. 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 Uh... <laughs> But, yeah, no, so, that's basically all I got huh. for this episode. Uh, so, I'll go ahead and close this out. Thanks for listening. Uh, hopefully, y'all enjoyed today's topic, and if you did, tell your friends about us. If you want to go a bit deeper into uh, the stuff discussed today, I'll put some sources down in the show notes. Our instrumental music is by Mountaineer. You can find their stuff and more on upbeat.io. As always, we like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's History, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S at gmail.com. And like I said, thanks for listening. And... Till next time, bye. Bye. Or as I say in Esperanto, da compro oscultado. Adieu. <laughs>